As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Jerome Schneider, I think he inherited Bill Gross's Monroe Trader out at PIMCO. He does the short-term ballet there with a 4.87% two-year yield and joins us uh, this morning. Just an open question on your desk. What is the the focal point within the short-term space? You know, there, there's a couple of focal points. Clearly, the topic and topic du jour is you know, simply that cash is back, bonds are back, yields are higher. We can find a lot of attraction simply being at the front of the yield curve. That's, that's sort of a no-known. But the might... The, 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 the minutia, which really investors and savers need to think about, is the fact that depository rates are low. They need to be incentivized to really look at that, move out of 1% and 2% depository rates out the curve, even into T-bills, short-term strategies, two-year notes, things like that. The second thing is, is that clearly the Fed is data dependent, but that's also going to create an evolving process. Not necessarily that now that we're approaching the 4, 5.4, 5.5% terminal rate that people expect, but more importantly, that the cutting mechanism is focused less on supporting growth. And that goes for the ECB too, as well, Tom, as well, uh, focused not on supporting growth, but focusing on fighting inflation. We know that. And that's a fundamental change compared to where we've been over the past few decades in terms of that. And the final thing really to think about about is don't necessarily be worried about liquidity conditions in the near term. There's plenty of excess uh, reserves around in the system and et cetera. But the higher nominal rates that we are experiencing within the broader economy are going to have reverberations within corporate credit, within various structures, and we're going to see that proliferate. So investors need to be thinking about how to go about maintaining their degrees of freedom, high degrees of liquidity, and more importantly, embracing these higher yields, which simply are going to be a, a much more uh, acceptable place to be over the next year or so as we sort of you know, continue to romanticize going from you know, effectively the deflationary utopia that we once were in just a few weeks ago to the inflationary dystopia, maybe that's a strong word, that sure. we're possibly uh, embarking on at this point in time. This is a process. It takes a while. Whenever I speak to you or see you now, I just think, well, Jerome must be so, so busy. How long does this take for people to shift and get away from their bank accounts, which like offer you zero, and come to you and give you the money? Well, for, for the short-term desk at PIMCO, it's very quick because we try to optimize between all these mechanisms. But for the investor, even the most sophisticated institutional investor, they're really not moving as quickly as you would expect. And there's actually qu pretty big diversions. Sure, a lot of retail investors are now focused on the high amounts of cash sitting in their accounts. They're well aware of yields where they are today. That's making an attraction to be, you know, be that bonds are back is, 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 is a well-known thought process over the past few months. But the reality is, is that it's still an evolutionary process. 
it does take time. The higher yields that we are sitting here talking about today, even a 4% 10-year note, is a relatively new phenomenon, especially in history in the post-GFC world. So we we need to think about the construction of portfolios in a much more widespread uh, widespread criteria than simply the past six weeks. And that's really what we're going to do. So this is much more protracted evaluation of how to create a different investment approach over the medium term. One phrase that has cropped up over the last couple of weeks is reinvestment risk. Just the idea that if you go short too short term, maybe you miss the window to really take these yields and bake them in much longer. How do you advocate for where people should be on the curve in the yeah, treasury market? It's probably a measured response, quite honestly. And you have to think about it. You can look at it from an economic point of view. Where's the neutral rate of, where's, where's the, where, where are neutral rates going to be? There's inflationary expectations that come in, into them, uh, into that as well. And so if you think inflation is going to be higher, you have to think where the neutral rate should be, which obviously affects where you think you should be buying duration, buying bonds. And, and that in and of itself is, is a point. To your point more microscopically, there, it cuts both ways, quite honestly, John. When you think about it, the two-year note actually has a negative return so far this year. And if you bought it you know, at the end of last year to today, it's actually a negative return if you think about it. Well, it does yield almost 5% at this point in time. So that is attractive. So it also beckons, what is your horizon? What is your investment horizon? What is your purpose? Is it liquidity management? Is it something to plan for the, buying a house over the next two or three years, even, even though mortgage rates are higher? There's a variety of circumstances. So understanding and matching your investment needs with the investment itself is actually important. And that's probably going to be the main driver of how much or where on the interest rate curve you you end up buying at this point in time. People, people are trying to game out substantially higher rates as we see uh, ongoing surprises uh, with respect to inflation data. How disruptive would it be if rates were to rise substantially more from here? Well, you obviously have a, a different framework um, in play. And I think, again, to reemphasize, the framework is not necessarily supporting growth at this point in time. It's fighting inflation at this point in time, something very different. So it's going to be a, a bit of a long and dusty road to that destination. We should expect a little bit more volatility. We've clearly witnessed that over the past few weeks. Ultimately, it's a question whether the Fed takes the high road or the low road, proverbially and literally with rates, and understand where it's ultimately going to go. So if you did have a shock to the system of another few hundred basis point of rates, sure, what we would recommend and what you would see is that the risk aversion you would have would be focused on the center of those concentric circles of risk that we have at PEMCO, meaning the safest areas, and the outer realms of those concentric circles would move wider in terms of price and spread and, 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 and yield to compensate for that. And what I suggested where we are now is a gentle recalibration, what you're suggesting by moving to those higher rates is a more methodical, very drastic rationalization of return expectations, risk risk assumptions, spread assumptions. So there is a, there is very much a, you know, a, a recalibration that would go on, tightening conditions, and you might actually see some breakage at that point in time. But I also think that you, what you're hearing clearly from the Fed is the process, which is going to be a digestive situation where they're going to digest the data. And the market has rationalized over the past few weeks, not necessarily that there's a lot of more rate hikes to come, but there's less cuts to come. And there's a big difference in that. So even at PIMCO, we've shifted our expectations of, of a recession this year, push possibly pushing that out to 2024. So modest growth in 2023, perhaps pushing that out to 2024. That's something that actually creates a, a longer road for the Fed to really rationalize decisions, be more data dependent, fortunately or unfortunately, and maybe doesn't necessarily create that shock to the system that, that you're suggesting. Jerome, you're going to stick with us, but just to tee up the next segment, higher for longer. We all get the higher piece of this. You've just touched on the for longer bit of it. Where are you on the for longer bit of it? How long for? Yeah, and, and that, I think that's really putting it. You're going to have ultimately 
when you see PCE core specifically coming down, and you might not actually get that data until late this year and early next year. So the longer isn't eternity, it's maybe just a pensive, a pensive thought process, which puts us well into 2024. It is a joy to have Jerome Schneider with us with PIMCO. Undiscovered Jerome this week was what I'm going to call the Ides of October. I know you run your uh, short-term portfolio off lunar astrology, but and not the Ides of March, but the Bloomberg Total Return Index reached a low in October of last year, price down, yield up. Very quietly this week, we slipped below the December, the history here between October and now. Is there a possibility we retest price down, yield up that we saw in October and what will be the consequences to short-term paper? Now that you divulge the secret of the short-term desk at PIMCO, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Well, but, you know. but at the reality is, is that there's one thing very different in the calculus today than, than October. October. Yeah. Yield. When you think about total return, whether it's a short-term bond fund, a total return bond mm -hmm. fund, income, it's the composition of capital appreciation plus right. yield. And that yield and carry component is worth 500 right. plus basis points, depending on the type of strategy at this point in time, that in and of itself can alleviate a lot of the capital appreciation or depreciation you say. So when I said right. before, be careful owning the two-year note because it's actually a negative total return this year. Yes, we're looking at a microcosm yeah. of a couple of months. In general, if you're holding it to maturity, you will make those yields. But there's different ways to manage your interest rate exposure. Well, interest rate exposure is a sensitivity. That's right to be where aware I wanted of. to go, and I'm going to play it off Mandalorian because I know at Pimco when they make a successful trade, they go, "This is the way." But the answer is, you and Crescenzi are the only two people on the planet that read Fabozzi cover to cover. And to keep it real simple here, do I gather a 10-year success by taking five two-year tranches out? Is that where we are right now in terms of retail clients? Grab the two-year and tranche it out five times? I think what investors are looking to do is simply navigate the next next one to two years with a, of uncertainty in the macroeconomics. And typically, you're having an inflection point. You owe equities, you own equities because you believe that there is a rate stabilization and inflation understanding that is going to be stable for the next umpteen years. And that in, inevitably owning an equity is, is effectively owning a long duration bond with some given pr profitability earnings and, and obviously uh, risk-free rate assumptions baked in. What we ultimately want to think about, though, is you know, investors have had a lot of reinvestment to do over the past few years, and then they were faced with uncertainty, uh, wars, uh, pandemics. These are all factors that really change the psychology of investors that we have to think about things that we haven't seen in many years. In fact, many traders today on Wall Street, young people haven't seen many of the phenomenon that we are witnessing today, even positive rates as yeah. a, an obvious example, inflationary expectations in the general population. These are things that we haven't seen in 40 plus years. So the calculus is ripe for a pause. It means that traditional mechanisms for just simply earning interest put the put the baton firmly in the hand of savers. And it doesn't necessarily mean you need to make these bold predictions in terms of, you know, taking a lot of risk at this point in time. Having some optionality, just like the Fed, is exactly what investors want to do at this point in time. When you talk about optionality, uh, people have gotten a little bit hysterical this week. And I, I admit that I understand why this feeling that maybe we have totally underestimated inflation and how sticky it is globally, what central banks have to do, what a terminal rate actually looks like. There has been a reset this week. What gives you the PIMCO confidence that we're not at that point 
that the market's gotten ahead of itself right now, that the Fed doesn't need to do that much more, it just needs to pause, and that the data that's coming in shows progress, even if the headline big numbers aren't necessarily screaming that message. Yeah, we are actually debating this next week at PIMCO in our, in our cyclical forum, which we look at the next year or so view of where we're headed for the economy. I think one of the healthy debates in there is not necessarily just where the neutral rate will be and where their interest or inflationary expectations come down, but really how sticky they are going to remain. And I think, unfortunately, we are on this long road and we are not necessarily knowing where the end of that road is going to be. So the consequence is the Fed's going to probably remain on hold. They're going to be faced with PCE, core PCEs that are well above that 2% number. We don't necessarily see that coming down until 2024, possibly 25 at the earliest. So the consequence is, is that there is a lot of unknowns right now, and that's perfectly fine. And investors, unfortunately, have to be prepared for that uncertainty as a result. So what we want to do, and as a practitioner, is prepare portfolios for that resiliency that we think is going to be nece- necessary to, to survive the uncertainty of the next few years. So can you give us a sneak peek into that <laughs> committee brawl and this sort of discussion, what the range of views looks like in terms of terminal rates, in terms of inflation over the longer term? Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily give the depiction of an economic gladiator set, but it is, it is, like, it is effectively a healthy debate. And we put all these variables and we want to effectively understand how portfolios can behave in a variety of circumstances, left tail, right tail, and then ultimately rationalize it in this higher rate environment. As an example, when we actually think about this environment right now, we're faced with a multitude of things which create different levels of uncertainty. However, higher rates create different outcomes than zero or near zero or even negative rates. So we have to think about the construction and that confidence. We think that, as I said previously, that we're not necessarily going to see a recession in 2023. It might get pushed to 2024. That in and of itself puts us in a situation where the Fed probably has a little bit longer runway to be on that holder holding period for a little bit longer here. It doesn't necessarily create saying that this is fair value right this second. There's clearly curve construction, curve considerations where the 10-year note is, which involves term premiums. And that's obviously a factor whether you want to be in the vicinity. But a 4% 10-year note, 5% two-year note, those are very different constructions of owning duration, owning bonds, which makes it a very interesting environment at this This point. This goes to the heart of what we were talking about two hours ago, which is suddenly you get a higher rate, you get some inflation, you get some nominal GDP, and things actually work out better, giving Powell and Lagarde breathing room. This is transformational. I'm not sure anything about what's happening right now gives Powell or Lagarde breathing room, though, given what's happened with the economic data recently. I misspoke. Oh, right. Was that a correction? That was a correction. Oh, right. Nice. Surveillance correction. It's rare. (laughs) Jerome, thank you. It's good to see you. As always, Jerome Snyder at PIMCO. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
Lindsay Piggs is on her fourth redo of The Architect on the blowout of the kitchen in Wisconsin and joins us today here in New York. Chief economist at Stiefel. What's the mood of the consumer? I mean, is there I, – I, in New York here, we clearly get this effervescence that's out there. The restaurants are packed, et cetera. You know the drill as well. Is it legit? Nationwide? Well, it's interesting because we did see that pop in consumer activity at the start of the year, but at the same time, we saw consumer confidence tick down at the start of the year. So it, it doesn't appear as if the consumer is increasingly confident in their financial footing. It appears more as if we're seeing the consumer's last stand, if you will, as households are drawing down the very last of savings, they're ramping up credit card debt. Now, this doesn't mean that it's a one month off. We could see continued strength then in February maybe even March, but this is not a lasting trend of robust activity on the consumer part. So some people will push back inevitably, since that's what the market is doing, pushing back against your view and saying, well, if you look at all of the inflation data, it's come in surprisingly hot again and again. What can give us confidence that is just that this is just the last gasp before a more protracted disinflation, a more protracted decline? Oh, I don't think we have the confidence right now. And certainly from the Fed's point of view, we're not seeing that in the inflation data. So they're going to have to see a, a marked decline in consumer activity translating into then significant job destruction in order to see confidence in, se in the sense that wage pressures are coming down. Now, earlier we were talking about services, and for the Fed, that's where the focus lies. In core services, excluding housing, they want to see that proxy for the wage price spiral show improvement. And we just haven't seen that yet. So while we are confident that as the Fed continues to raise rates, the economy will slow, and by extension, the consumer will slow. There's still a considerable amount of work left to be done. Let's talk about long and uh, variable lags. This question around when we'll start to see the bulk of some of the rate rises that already have taken place. Tom was talking about that Dallas Fed survey on housing potentially declining by 20 percent in valuations as a response in a response to what we're seeing in mortgage rates. Can you talk about how long? those lags are before we start to see some sort of repricing based on the fact that people aren't moving around. They've got locked in mortgage rates that are very low and they're not moving. Well, traditionally, the impact from earlier policy metrics take about six to nine months to filter into financial markets. But now, <clears throat> arguably, that lag is much shorter. If you think about all of the transparency that we have with the Fed, we didn't have a press conference at every Fed meeting in the past. We didn't have a summary of economic projections every quarter. We we didn't have every Fed official taking the stage at every opportunity to explain not only what the Fed has done, but what they're no. going to do. So arguably, there's an anticipatory nature of financial market reactions. And I do think that has significantly reduced the lag or the need for the Fed to pause and take a right. look back. One of the microeconomic foundations here is just as one example, oversupply solves oversupply. And to carry it over, Dr. Terry Weissman was with us with Macquarie earlier, and he said, High inflation can solve high inflation. Oliver Chen at TD Cowan published moments ago that he observes Costco seeing, finally, food disinflation. In America, does high inflation solve high inflation? It could on the supply side. But on the demand side, what we're seeing is this lingering imbalance between labor demand and labor supply. And that will not be solved by high inflation. That becomes the wage price spiral that the Fed so greatly fears, where high inflation leads to even higher inflation. So for the Fed, I don't think simply standing by the wayside and allowing natural markets to clear itself will be a long-term solution. Do you think it's realistic that the Fed could get to 6% in a Fed funds rate? 
Absolutely. That has been our, our longstanding call for the, the terminal rate. Absolutely. Okay. So at what point do they sort of signal that to markets? Because that is significantly above where the market has retraced to, and we have seen a big repricing this week. What kicks them up to that level? Well, I think they're slowly making their way, but they don't want to overpromise in terms of the terminal rate if, in fact, inflation does so, uh, excuse me, does show market improvement. But given the fact that the market and the Fed consistently underestimates the sticky nature of inflation, what we've seen is the Fed consistently revise higher their forecast, now 230 basis points higher than that initial forecast in March of last year. Mike, help me here. You know, we've got a huge Formula One weekend and we were so honored to have Christian Horner with us from Red Bull with us on Monday after the race. Did I miss the memo that we have to dress Ferrari today? Did I, <laughs> did I, miss, the, did I miss the memo? I mean, uh, it's, it's just like, it's like red. Well, I mean, you're... On radio, we have two lovely ladies in red. I mean, yeah, it's just, well, dressing Ferrari is fine. You know, they're, they're all Ferrari. What, Mark, you listen to this. What do you think of this? What do you think of this inflation solves, high inflation? Solves well, I mean, that's an old line about uh, the cure of, for high commodity prices is high commodity prices because then it brings more people in, more supply. And so prices come down. And I think that's probably what's going to happen eventually. The question is how long it takes for inflation to come down and how sticky it is and how much the Fed thinks it can affect that by continuing to raise interest rates. Their view is they're pretty close to re restrictive enough. Uh, they're not sure if they're restrictive yet. Uh, yet. They're right on the line. So do they go to 6%? I think it'll be a slow process for them to do that and to talk about it. Because as Lindsay says, you don't want to overpromise. And everybody says, well, why didn't you go to 6% if suddenly uh, we see things to start to turn around. Yeah, but Lindsay, and I want to go back to something that Jerome Schneider was talking about of PIMCO, that if we were to get to 6%, that would perhaps get us that much closer to a hard landing, right? That the further the Fed has to go, the more you're almost securing a very difficult situation for this economy. Is that what you're saying? That that's almost the base case for you at a time when a lot of people might be pushing back their recession calls, and but not necessarily increasing the depth of them? I think if we do get the, to a 6% rate and have to hold at 6%, I think we're increasing the probability of a hard landing. If, however, the Fed pushes up to 6%, realize that they're sufficiently restrictive and then come back to a five, five and a half percent range, we may be able to mitigate some of the depth or duration of the downturn. But from the Fed's point of view, a period of pain is not only likely, but necessary for the economy to mortgages? reinstate price stability. Well, but to that point, Tom, and you're right. To that point, Lindsay, what kind of damage do we see to housing valuations that haven't been gamed into the Dallas Fed's point? We're going to see a significant uh, decline. Absolutely. But remember, when we talk about this housing market cycle, I, I think it's a very uh, maybe superficial analysis to assume that because it's the most interest rate sensitive sector of the economy, as the Fed raises rates, the, uh, the housing market falls off a cliff. This time around, we went into the cycle with a multi-year deficit in terms of housing stock. And so even with demand coming off of peaks and supply arguably coming off the lows, we still have a disconnect in the market market 
that should provide somewhat of a floor to this housing market cycle, even if we continue to see downward momentum from here. There's a, a, an interesting uh, thing going on in the housing markets, too, that I was talking to some Fed officials they've been surprised by, that a lot of builders are subsidizing mortgage loans right now. They're doing buy-downs for people because they want to keep uh, the business going. And we saw a little bit of something like that with automobiles coming out of the great financial crisis where the auto companies offered 0% loans and kept people buying cars. So we may it, it may be a little harder to model out what's going to happen in the housing industry if people are going to buy you into it. One of the most complicated environments I could possibly imagine. Lindsay Piegska of Seville, thank you so much for being here. Michael McKee, as always, wonderful to get your comments. Katie Kaminsky joins us now, Chief Research Strategist at Alpha Simplex. Katie, you have been phenomenal through the whole of last year and then into this year. Katie, everyone turned around. I say everyone. You know where I'm going with this. A lot of people turned around and said, it's the year of bonds, get long fixed income. And you went short, stayed short. Katie, why? Well, let's just focus on the fact that inflation is looking stickier. And if we look at last year, I think we like to see it this way, is that the stock market and the bond market don't agree right now. The stock market thinks everything's great. The bond market that says this could be dangerous. Look at the curve. It's inverted. Uh, we could have problems. So we think last year the bond market was right. This year, it's a little trickier. We're seeing that the bond market is looking a little weaker in the sense that the stock market is looking positive, saying, hey, wait a minute, we might pause. Either way, we're not there which means that even if the stock market's right and we pause, we could see the end of the curve steepen severely, and that would cause negative uh, trends in, in the long end of the curve. Or if the bond market's right and we're looking at a recession and deflationary environment, then you're also looking at higher rates, at least in the short term. So bonds are definitely looking tricky this year, even so though many Katie, said the opposite. Katie, talk to me a little bit more about this short then. Where across the curve is that short more pronounced? Is it spread evenly? Is it a specific pocket, part, point of that yield curve? Well, generally, it's pretty much short across the board across global economies. And that, in some sense, tells you that we have farther to go in terms of raising rates to either get to a point where we can fight inflation, get it to be less sticky, or we get to a situation where central bankers throw up their hands and say, we're going to tolerate a higher um, inflation level. And either of those is going to be very tricky for fixed cash flows, which means that bond signals in general remain short on the technical side, even though the fundamental side, many people are starting and get interested. Katie, let's have fun on Friday. Let's channel Wells Wilder, who invented so much of this in 1978. I know you named your dog average to range. Katie, the answer is there's been a magnificent trend of higher yield. I was shocked to go to the Bloomberg and under one technical study, ADX DMI, see that A, the trend's in place, and we're really in a good position to continue the trend out there. How do you use that kind of mumbo jumbo to stay in a trend once you've profited? Well, that's a good point. I mean, I'll be honest, January was a period where we saw consolidation. People thought yields were not going to go higher. And it's really about balancing the long-term and short-term views. And what we've seen is longer-term views are saying we're in a secular move towards higher rates, and we're not there yet. I think the equity market also likes to be quick to say that things are over. So I think it's really about balancing multiple perspectives and seeing things um, over time as opposed to reacting too quickly. What are you looking for, Katie, to unwind your short bet on rates? 
Well, I think the biggest is if the stock market wins, aka if central bankers step back, like we saw commentary yesterday, and say, wait a minute, we're going to tolerate more inflation. What that means is that you're going to see a steepening of the curve. So you're going to see sort of the bottom of the short end of the um a uh, short end of the curve. So shorter term rates will be stickier. And then you'll start to see people actually take on uh, higher yields and then bond. But that's going to mean that longer term yields are going to have to go up to compensate for that risk over longer terms. So I think that's where you're going to see the shorts disappearing on the short end of the curve. But you're going to still see some strong signals on the long end of the curve as the market moves to a higher inflation tolerance environment. Katie, can you talk a little bit about the long end and where you see the range? Because right now, now we have a growing number of bond strategists saying that we possibly are at the peaks and you're suggesting we're far from them. How far? Well, I think it will definitely be a situation if we had a healthy yield curve, which we could see, and we were to tolerate higher inflation, you could imagine that you had the longer term rates going up several percent above what you see on the two year. I mean, that would sort of symbolize a very state stable environment with higher inflation, whereas I don't think you're seeing that yet. But that's would be an environment where basically we give up on trying to fight inflation down to two. And thus, the risk premium on the longer end has to go up and you have to get a longer yield if you don't expect yields uh, to go up or inflation to go down in the longer term. Katie, you've just been phenomenal. Thanks for being with us this morning. We appreciate it. And let's catch up more often. Katie Kaminsky there of Alpha Simplex. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Terry Weissman is out of Vassar and out of Harvard. We had the privilege of being in the same uh, corridors Is Benjamin Friedman. I'm going to go back right now to the gentleman strategist at Macquarie to Benjamin Friedman's great, the consequences, uh, the moral consequences of growth. I want you to sum up today where we are, and that is the consequences of pandemic stimulus that include that broadening inflation. Yeah, in, in some respect, what policymakers did during the pandemic has turned out to be a disaster. Uh, I think that what they were thinking was they were looking back on the past 10 years and saw very little uh, relationship between unemployment and inflation. They saw as a result of the big increase in monetary balances coming out of the GFC, really no inflation. And they thought they could re effectively repeat that experiment. Mm -hmm. And it's been proven to be wrong. Uh, I think it was wrong this time around because it wasn't just a monetary experiment. It was a monetary experiment combined with a fiscal experiment. In other words, excessive fiscal spending, not just in the Western world, but across 
uh, the, the developed markets and the emerging markets, and at the same time, expansive monetary policy in the emerging markets and the developed markets. So we have a global inflation problem as a result of this. The good news, if there is any, is that there are, you know, there are ways to stop inflations. There are really two ways, in fact. One of them is to tighten monetary policy, but the other, uh, the other way, interestingly enough, is actually to let the inflation happen. Because when you do that, real monetary balances start to shrink. Yeah. And when real monetary balances shrink, the consumer feels squeezed. And you can see that in the U.S. data, right? If you look at real monetary balances measured by commercial deposits, I should say bank deposits, commercial banks in the U.S., they're almost back to their trend level. Mm -hmm. Part of that is the quantitative tightening that we've seen over the last few months, but most of that is the inflation that's already happened. In other words, by virtue of having inflation, you eventually slow down and reduce right. the real balances and the consumer feels squeezed. One of the reasons why I think that we're gonna see a resumption of the trend in disinflation in the US is for that very reason. Europe, on the other hand, is another story. They're just starting their <clears throat> QT. Yeah. Go, let's go Chicago on this. How do you overlay, as you mentioned, the monetary balances? How do you overlay the stunning increase and then stunning decline we've seen in M2? Go Milton Friedman on us right now. Is that of value to you to see M2 as such a plunge? It is. And, and I have to admit that, you know, post the GFC, I might have been one of those who thought that money was no longer important. Right, right, I might have right. abandoned the, the old monetarist view coming out of the University of Chicago because the yeah. data simply didn't, didn't, didn't support it. The correlations didn't support yeah. it. The trends didn't support it. But now we see a resumption of uh, validity. In, in the monetarist story that money does matter. And we probably got to a point where those real monetary balances in the US got to about 20% above the trend line. Well, guess what? That would, that would you, know, you know, back of the envelope, that would imply that we're gonna see a 20% increase in prices over and above the trend line for CPI. It's not so far from where we, we've gotten to, right? Um, and and uh, But, but the, again, the good news is that it's being unwound here, certainly. Not in other places, but in the U.S. it is. So let's talk about the unwinding process, because there has been percolating on the peripheries this question of unwinding the balance sheet of both the ECB and the U.S. more quickly than people had previously thought. That that will be the primary tool over the next 9 to 12 months, rather than rate hikes. How much higher does that push longer end rates, both in the U.S. and in Europe? Well, you, 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 can, you can say that by virtue of quantitative tightening, we're going to see the central banks uh, um, no longer buying bonds uh, and potentially, potentially even selling their bonds. But that, that's running up against another problem, which is the problem of a slowing economy. And I'm not exactly sure which is going to dominate. But I think for the next three to six months, we're probably going to see lower yields in the U.S., not higher yields. I know this is not necessarily the vogue thing to say right now. Uh, the 10-year yield just reached a cyclical high of 4.1 uh, yesterday. But keep in mind, my view is that we're going to see a slowdown in the U.S. economy in the next few months, and it will be significant. I think in many sectors, we're already seeing it. Technology is certainly in a recessionary environment right now. All new economy sectors are, finance potentially as well, housing certainly. So that's going to broaden, uh, and uh, I think we're looking at peak 10-year yields right now, I think they're going to start heading down over the next three to six months. This is Not important. by a lot, mind you. Okay, um, but this has important implications for a yield curve that has been deeply inverted. And does this mean that it gets even more so, substantially more inverted? Potentially, yes. But keep in mind, it depends how you measure that inversion. If it's twos to tens, and by the time we roll you know, three months from now, you know, the Fed is signaling that it's about to stop hiking rates, well, that, that inversion may stop on a twos to tens basis. It may still persist on a three-month to 10-year uh, yield curve basis. So, Terry, what I'm hearing from you is that rate differentials between Europe and the United States could narrow. And if they do, where would that leave foreign exchange? 
So that that's that's absolutely right. You could see higher yields in Europe still because they've been late to, to addressing the inflation issue, and inflation is higher there on, on top of that. And I would make even a case that the esoteric truth out there is that the European economy is actually stronger than the U.S. economy right now. Yes, believe it or not, it may very well be. Look at the PMIs this morning on the services side. They, they have, there's a potential that they come in in line with the U.S. Uh, remember, Europe is coming out of its funk that it experienced in Q4 by virtue of the, of the winter emergency. It has China backing it up all of a sudden with its stimulus. Uh, it's very possible that the Just, European economy is doing a little bit better than the U.S. right now in terms of growth, and that all supports higher yields in, in the euro area versus the U.S., at least on a relative basis. 20 seconds. How long could Europe remain stronger economically than the U.S.? your view? Well, until we finally start to see some real tightening by the ECB, and we haven't seen that yet. I mean, you know, Tom was talking about uh, 9% inflation, uh, headline basis uh, in the euro area. Uh, the deposit rate is two and a half. I mean, those are the kind of negative real rates that you would expect from a rogue central bank, a Turkey, for example. I, I, I hate to use that term, but I can't find a better one at this point. Uh, it looks, Good you know, morning, optic, optically, you can make a case that the ECB has gone rogue and it's just finally starting to get back in line. That's pretty punchy it's really, stuff. It's only really since December that Christine Lagarde has really emphasized the need to address the inflation issue. And I think it was that time, you know, just really two months ago, they, she, you know, to her credit, started to realize that this was a, there was a broadening of the inflation. Yeah, December was stronger. In, in and then we had era. the last meeting, which was kind of odd, where she said the risks around the inflation outlook have become more balanced. I wonder if That's that gets right. revised I mean, in looks, the next meeting. Well, structurally, there are a bunch of problems that are point to higher inflation in the euro area as well, right? I mean, you, you know, Cornell University has an institute that does fantastic work on just tracking labor action and labor strikes in the U.S. Well, guess what? It peaked in the summer. Yet since then, labor has become less agitated in the U.S., less active, less strike-oriented different in, the, in, in Europe right now. Look at the UK. They're worried about more strikes. France yeah. is just getting through a wave of them right now. Uh, wage pressures are higher in, in, in the euro area right now than they are in the US. Was not that case in the summer. It is the case I'm now. I'm against the clock. I've got to squeeze it in again. Euro dollars 106. Everything you've said just screams stronger Europe, doesn't it? Stronger euro. So what's your target? Yeah, for the next for the next two or three or four months into the middle of the year, I think we get back up to that 110 level in the euro. Okay. Right. Yeah, so exactly. nothing too dramatic. Nothing to the, too dramatic. To the highs of the year. Nothing too dramatic. Remember, okay. if, if the world goes into recession, that tends to be good for the dollars. You have to consider that's going to offset that, that, that upward pressure on the Terry, this was extent. great. Just fantastic. My pleasure. Your perspective. Pretty original right now, I've got to say. Yeah, you're the consensus stronger. View. Stronger than the US, actually. Oh, I've heard that a couple of times in the last 24 hours. The whole Europe better than the, the, the US Central thing. Bank. I love it. The I, I'm not Central sure President Lagarde would love that this morning. Terry Wasserman of Macquarie. Terry, thank you. Just wonderful. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app. Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.